friends, because that song is true and we need God every hour. We need Him for righteousness. We need Him for everything. Let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask Him to be with us as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we acknowledge our weakness and our frailty and our sin. Father, we have no hope for ourselves outside of Christ. We have no hope that even this time as we look to your word would be useful unless you show up. And so we pray that you would. The comfort, Father, is that you're a faithful God. You're a good God. You're gracious and you're merciful. And for the saints here at CBC, we are now called by your name. And so we know that you hear us and that you answer our prayers. So, Father, pour your spirit out now in power on me as the preacher of your word. That I might be helpful to these dear people and pray and please pray. Uh, please pour out, excuse me, your spirit on these dear people. That this time would be useful. That hearts and minds and lives would be changed. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior and our hope and our righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, friends, we've talked about this uh, a number of times lately. We need this. We need corporate worship. We need to have our hearts and our minds recalibrated every Sunday, every Lord's Day. God, in his wisdom and in his goodness, has told us to do this and has told us to not forsake doing this because he knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we as local churches need to gather every week as a community of sinners who gather each week to repent and believe the gospel. That's what we're doing even today. We're a community of sinners gathering to repent and believe the gospel. We come together every Lord's Day to experience word and sacrament and people of God realities. And we trust that these are the ordinary means through which God sustains faith. And these are the ordinary means the proclamation of the gospel in particular is the way that God, the means through which he grants faith and repentance. We need to gather like this every week, frankly, because life is hard often. I said this maybe last Sunday, say this a lot. Some of you may be coming in here today doing really well. You're thinking, man, I had an absolutely phenomenal week. Things were just good across the board. I'm killing it at work. Things on the home front are good. And I had a, a really good time on Friday night with friends, whatever it may be. Fantastic week for you. If that's you, praise God that that's true. And be grateful to him for a good week. But many will be coming in today, on a day like today anyway, struggling mightily. Heartbroken over all kinds of things. Very aware of the struggle that life in this fallen world is. And if we're being real, the daily and weekly experience of the Christian life is not this triumphant, just onward and upward thing. 
that is so often peddled in American evangelicalism. It's not that. We struggle, like for real. We struggle and we trust Christ. It's what we do. And that's why we need gatherings like this. Because we never move beyond the gospel. We say that a lot. You've heard me reiterate this through this series in Galatians. I'm going to keep beating this drum. We say that a lot. We never move beyond the gospel. But many of our sermons indicate otherwise. Many of our conversations indicate otherwise. We live, brothers and sisters, in the gospel. We live in the gospel. Every day that you're breathing, every day that I'm breathing, we are always looking outside of us to save what's wrong in us. We are always looking outside of ourselves to Jesus for our righteousness and for the ground of our standing before God. Our posture as Christians, our posture here at CBC as we lock arms together, is to do that, lock arms with brothers and sisters in Christ, trust Jesus, and rely upon the Holy Spirit. It's what we do. So this is why I know I'm concerned for this and Ron is concerned for this. We always try to blow up any of the talk that sounds something like this. It says, oh yeah, of course, of course, brother, we understand the gospel. Of course, we understand the good news. But let's, let's talk about some other stuff. Let's, let's talk about things that really matter in the nuts and bolts of my life. I, I need some practical stuff. I need some how-tos. Or I need maybe even just to talk more specifically about the Christian life and discipleship. Not that any of those things in and of themselves are bad. But none of those things are the gospel. None of those things are Christ crucified for sinners. The gospel is what drives everything that we do as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of thinking, like, yeah, of course, we understand the gospel, but let's talk about this other thing. Assumes, on the one hand, that you could separate the gospel from Christian life. It assumes that you could somehow separate the gospel from discipleship, which is just frankly not true. It's impossible. It assumes that the gospel is something back there that was maybe an entry point, a starting point for me. It was really useful, really applicable, really took hold of my heart when I was not yet a believer and I heard the gospel and I trusted Christ. That was awesome. But now I've kind of moved beyond it. That's what that kind of talk and that kind of thinking conveys. But friend, the Christian life can only exist within and underneath the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we are told in Scripture how we are to live together as a community of Christians, how we're to live together as brothers and sisters in the faith, we're having a conversation about what life together should look like as we live in and under the gospel. And we get to consider aspects of that today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you do open them up to Galatians chapter five. If you didn't uh, bring a Bible with you today, sadly, we don't have pew Bibles to offer you. We don't really have pews to offer you either. But we also will be putting verses, we hope, yes, right here on the screen uh, for you to be able to track with us as we follow along in God's word. We're going to be considering verses 13 through 15 today from chapter five of Paul's letter to 
the Galatians. And before we go any further, friends, I'm going to read these three verses for us. This is God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I rarely pull this off for you, but I'm going to do the very good Baptist thing today of giving you a three-point sermon. So point number one goes this way. We're going to dive right in. I'll give them to you one at a time. Point number one. In Christ, we are called to freedom. In Christ, we are called to freedom. Now, I spent a decent amount of time a few weeks ago as we were considering verse one of chapter five about what all that freedom in Christ entails. So I'm not going to rehearse all of that this morning, but I want to consider a couple of aspects of what freedom in Christ means for you and me. What kind of freedom is it? One thing that we certainly can say is that we are free from fear of condemnation. We are free from fear of condemnation. You could even put next to that condemnation word guilt. Free of condemnation and guilt. And this is because we have been justified. And we've thought about how that word means. We have been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ apart from anything that we could ever do. We have been Rejoicing in that wonderful good news that through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, we are declared righteous. And this is because of Christ's perfect work in our place. We, by nature, are all lawbreakers. We were made by God uniquely in His image. We were made to rule over creation in God's stead. God made a covenant with Adam. You can eat of anything, but don't eat that. And Adam and Eve ate that particular fruit. And as a result, all of creation and all of humanity was plunged into ruin. And so all of us who are born after Adam and Eve, and that's all of us, we inherit the guilt of Adam. We inherit the corruption of Adam. And therefore, we sin. Therefore, we're lawbreakers. And we are born guilty before God. We are unwilling and unable to do anything about our spiritual condition. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead spiritually. But God had determined in eternity past to save a people. To make a people for Himself who would know Him and love Him and worship Him and enjoy Him forever. And in order to purchase them and save them in righteousness, He sent His Son. God the Son became a man and lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And so, any of us who turn from our own sinning and our own notions of our own righteousness and trust in Christ, we have His perfect righteousness counted to us through faith. And we also talked about how God in His holiness and in His righteousness, we've considered these things, He requires a payment for sin. There's a real penalty that is due. And Christ took our law-breaking and our sinning and all of that transgression upon Himself and really paid the penalty 
for anyone who would ever trust in him. So that not only is his perfect life counted to us through faith, but our sins, all of them, have been perfectly atoned for. And then Christ, when he took his life back up again on Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, after he'd been put in the ground on Friday, he conquered death and Satan and sin. He ascended to heaven days later. He reigns at the right hand of God the Father. He prays for his own. And he's coming back. And so we've thought about what else could there conceivably be for us to do? He has done it. He has accomplished the work of redemption perfectly. And his work is counted to us through faith. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. It's a pretty awesome deal. So we are free from the fear of condemnation and we are free of guilt. We don't need to carry that around anymore because Christ has dealt with it all. And we have been declared righteous simply through trusting him. Praise be to God. Another aspect of this freedom that we have been called to in Jesus is assurance in Christ that we will be finally saved. So this is also that kind of condemnation piece, because many of us, as we experience the Christian life daily, weekly, whatever, we are very aware of the fact that we're sinning. Like you tell me, like, I know that I'm going to make it to heaven. Well, how do you know that? Because you sin just like me. But we've gotten to rejoice in the reality, friends, that we will be finally saved by God. Everyone who has been justified now in Christ Jesus will be finally saved because it is God who justifies and it is God who will sanctify completely and glorify those whom he has justified. Your assurance and my assurance is grounded completely in the work of Christ. It has nothing to do with you. If anything in you contributes anything to your assurance, you don't have any. Nor do I. But because of Christ, we can trust, completely trust that we will be finally saved. And this, friends, frankly, is because Jesus has determined, he tells us this, to lose none of all that the Father has given. But he will raise us up on the last day. And Jesus never fails. Never Jesus is our hope, our rock, our one defense, our righteousness. He is our atonement. He is our resurrection. He is our life. And therefore, we have hope. We don't need to fear anymore. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in addition to being free from the fear of condemnation and even being freed from guilt, we have been set free in Christ, friends, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, Paul says. We have been set free from having to earn righteousness. We have been set free from having to earn righteousness in terms of our standing before God. We don't earn that righteousness. We don't earn our place before God. Jesus has earned that for us. And again, as I've said before, as we've made our way through Galatians, I 
I don't know that the struggle for us as we wrestle with this is full-blown, like straight-up works righteousness. I don't think anybody in this room probably, maybe, but I doubt it. You're here this morning. You're listening to the gospel being preached. I don't know that anybody is sitting here thinking that by myself, in and of my own strength completely, apart from any grace whatsoever, will I earn righteousness before God. That might be a poor assumption on my part, but I don't know that that's the real struggle. I think the struggle is actually much more subtle than that. Let me give you an illustration of maybe a a couple of the subtle ways that this we have to earn it thinking still kind of creeps in. Even even in a church like ours, where we rejoice in the gospel. I want to use the illustration of a mortgage payment. Just kind of track with me for a moment. Mortgage payment. You've taken out a loan, you're going to buy a house, right? So one way that this could look for us in thinking that we have to earn something could be this. Jesus has made the down payment on my spiritual mortgage, so to speak. He's made the down payment, but now it's on me to keep making those payments, right, monthly by obeying well enough to make sure that that loan doesn't default. If I don't keep obeying at an appropriate level, what, whoever defines that, right? Whoever defines that, I don't know. Then I'm going to lose my justification. My standing before God is somehow in jeopardy. If I don't do well enough. That's a subtle way that that kind of earning it law economy can creep into our thinking. A second way, still related to this mortgage illustration, would be this. That Jesus paid for all of my sins. He paid the entire mortgage on the cross. Like, it's all done. But now, I need to obey well enough in order to pay God back for what He loaned me. I've got to obey well enough, again, whoever defines that, in order to be the kind of person that God would be happy to save. Well, friends, both of those sort of subtle ways that the law and this kind of earning it mentality creeps in, both of those views represent bondage, not freedom. What I've just described is is a kind of slavery, not freedom. And we have been called to freedom in Christ. And this is because, as we've been rejoicing over already this morning, that Jesus has done everything when it comes to the work of redemption. He really did pay it all, not just most of it. But all of it. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then he sat down. He sat down. It's over. There's no more work to be done. He did it. And by that single offering of himself as the perfect substitute, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm just giving you Bible from Hebrews 10 right now. We are being sanctified, but Jesus has already definitively perfected us for all time. It's done. We are secure. It's not on you to keep making those mortgage payments because, friend, you can't afford them. And it's not on you to pay God back for saving you because you would never be able to do that. Ever. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And grace, by definition, is unmerited and unmeritable favor. So then the question is, well, what is, what's my response then? 
How do I respond to that grace? How do I respond to what God has done in Christ to save me? I respond in praise. I respond in thanksgiving. I respond in love and joyful obedience. Not to earn anything. But I do those things. I praise and I give thanks and I joyfully obey and I love because I want to live for God. And I want to honor God with my life. We have been called to freedom. But now point number two. Our freedom doesn't exist so we can indulge our sinful desires. Number two. Our freedom doesn't exist so that we can indulge our sinful desires. Put your eyes back on verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, brothers and sisters. We've thought about that freedom a little bit. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So, like I said this maybe two or three weeks ago, when we preach this biblical gospel, faith alone gospel, we ought to have people like raising their hands like, so, so bro, you're, you're saying we can sin now, right? You're saying we can sin, right? Because you're telling me that Jesus has done everything and in one sense I can't contribute anything. So you're saying it's okay to just do what I want. And then we get to joyfully answer, by no means do you sin because you were crucified with Christ. You really died in Christ to the law and you have died to sin. You have now been united to Jesus through faith. You were crucified with Him and you were buried with Him into His death. And as He was raised, you will be raised too. But also as He was raised, you have been raised to now walk in newness of life. In Christ, Brother, sister, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You still have indwelling sin. You and I, we still fight it and we battle it. That's for sure. But we are not in bondage any longer to sin. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And sin no longer reigns over us because we are not under law but we are under grace. That will sound familiar to some. It's Romans 6. Because in Romans 5, when Paul talks about the imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness to sinners through faith, he anticipates the objection. It's still the objection you get. We've thought about that a lot. If it's faith alone, bro, well then you're telling me I can sin. By no means. There are reasons why that's true. You're telling me I can sin by no means. You've been united to Christ. And there's this thing called the new birth. There's this thing called regeneration. In which, through the Spirit of God, you were raised from death to life. You were brought from blindness to sight. The heart of stone was ripped out and a heart of flesh was given to you. That happened to you. God did that. So, imperfectly, yes. But you have been changed. 
You are not perfect yet is what I mean by imperfectly. You still sin, so do I. And at the same time, you are really different than you were. We've been given new hearts and they're continuing to be changed. Our minds are being renewed by the Holy Spirit through the Word. So imperfectly, but really. Imperfectly, but really. Our desires have changed and are changing. Our affections have changed and are continuing to change. Our value system, like what we value, has changed and is still changing. Praise God. As I've said before many times, because I care about this and I care about it for us, the answer to nominalism, Christianity in name only, like people who say they're Christians and don't live at all like it, aren't concerned with the things of God, the answer to nominalism is not law. The answer to nominalism is gospel. The answer to nominalism is the new birth. It's conversion. And it's also right to say, not only is the answer to nominalism not law, but gospel, it's also right to say that the answer to moral disorder in the church is not law, but the Spirit of God. We'll think about that more in a couple of weeks as we consider the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. We now live by faith in the Son of God and we believe God's Word. That's true for you if you're a Christian. If you have been converted, you live by faith in the Son of God and you believe the Word of God. So are you going to go on sinning? No, you're not. Will you live perfectly? No, you will not. That believing God's Word piece is pretty crucial. Because see, as believers now, having been born again by God's Spirit, we believe and trust God's Word, not our reason. We believe and trust God's Word, not our feelings. We believe and trust God's Word, not our desires. So, I'm aware of, of this. I had several people come ask me this even after the sermon last Sunday because we were thinking more as we have been about love-driven obedience and joy-driven obedience and gratitude-driven obedience. And the question is asked, and it's a legitimate one. Like, what about when my obedience doesn't feel joyful? What about that? What about when it doesn't just feel like it's motivated by good things, but it feels heavy and it feels like a duty? What about that? Is that like legalism? Is that moralism? Is that just like willpower, white knuckle religion? It's a legit question. My answer to that is no. And I'm going to unpack that for just a second because this matters for you and for me so that believing God's word piece believing God's word shows up perhaps most evidently when we're not feeling it right when you're not feeling it that's when that belief and that trust in God's word shows up perhaps most obviously and evidently because we're not fully sanctified yet we're going to, at times, not feel like doing things God says are good. Right? Amen, somebody. Okay. And then also, because we're not fully sanctified, sometimes we want to do things that are contrary to what God says is good. 
So we don't want to do what he says is good, and we want to do things that he says are bad. It's because we're sinners still battling indwelling sin, battling the flesh. So then the question to you is this, friend, as you're wrestling with that time when I'm trying to obey and it feels like, it doesn't feel like joy, it feels hard. Why would you do something that you don't feel like doing? Why would you do that? Why, on the flip side, would you not do something that you want to do? The answer to that question is faith. Faith, trust, belief. Why would you not, excuse me, why would you do something you don't feel like doing? It's because you believe God and you trust His Word more than what you feel in the moment. More than what you're thinking in the moment. It's like, no, I don't trust my thinking, my feeling, my wanting. I trust God and what he has said. That's faith. The Christian life is always a battle for faith to believe God. Why would you not do something that you really want to do? Again, it's faith. It's because you believe God. Do you realize that? I don't know if you've thought about it like that before. So far from this kind of white-knuckle willpower, human you know, strength religion of like, eh, I'm just going to do this. That is a demonstration, friend, of remarkable faith, actually. When you deny your desires, your thinking, your feelings and say, no, I'm going to trust God on this one. That is faith. It demonstrates great faith because it is an indication that you know that God's word is upright and true and good. And that God's word is greater than your feelings and desires. Praise God for that kind of faith. And God is faithful by his spirit to work that kind of faith in us, his children. So our freedom doesn't exist so that we can indulge our sinful Desires, But now number three, our freedom exists so we can genuinely love one another. Our freedom exists so that we can genuinely love one another. So we've been called to freedom in Christ, not so that we can indulge our sin, but so that we can genuinely love one another. Put your eyes back on verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one saying, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But then if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by each other. So friends, in other words, our freedom in Christ exists so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves in accordance with God's law. I want to clarify just one or two things. Tommy already kind of did this when he read earlier. So he saved me a little time perhaps. You see there that Paul cites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the second commandment that is like the first. When Jesus is asked by lawyers, right, scribes, Pharisees, when he's asked by the religious leaders of the Jewish community of his day, Okay, well, what are, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. And we've thought before about how love God 
love neighbor in that construct sums up God's entire law and the prophets, his word, the old covenant. But it also very, very well summarizes the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, of course, a summary of God's law, right? But then this, this love God, love neighbor piece is a summary of the Ten Commandments beautifully. The first four commandments pertain in terms to how we relate to God directly. That's the first table of the law, as it's often referred to. The second table of the law, the last six commandments, deal primarily with how we relate to one another. First four commandments, love God. Last six commandments, love neighbor. This sums up God's law. And as Tommy alluded to earlier, Paul does not mention the love of the Lord your God peace. So then there's just a question that has to be asked. Is he in any way contradicting the Lord Jesus? Is he in any way like flattening the Ten Commandments, doing something irresponsible? The answer to that is no. As our brothers alluded to earlier, Scripture is replete with teaching that our love for God is demonstrated through our love for neighbor. Our love for God is demonstrated through our love for neighbor. This is true in the book of Moses, the first five books of the law. But it is also true in the New Testament. Think of a book like 1 John, for example, where we demonstrate that we are gods in the way that we love one another. The commandment Jesus gives his disciples in John 13. The world will know that you're mine by the ways you love one another. So the world will know about your relationship with me in how you relate to each other. So Paul is not doing anything irresponsible here at all. He's just summarizing the entire law in this demonstration sense. You demonstrate your love for God through the way you love your neighbor. So in terms of the entire law and what it would say to us about how to relate to each other, it is summed up in one saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Put your eyes down on verse 14 again, where he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. That's an important word, fulfilled. We've thought about how doing the law, like practicing the law, in order to be justified is impossible, one. And that kind of law economy thinking, I'm going to do this well enough to be justified, is slavery, not freedom. We've thought about those things. And it is at the same time true that while believers are no longer under the law, we by the Spirit live out what the law intended. It's pretty cool. We're not under it anymore. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But by grace, through the Spirit, we live out what the law intended. Verse 15, you see there, he gives a warning. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. Meaning, if you bite and devour each other, you will consume each other. You'll destroy each other. Biting and devouring of one another, friends, could probably be classified as a number of things. But I think it would certainly include malice, anger, animosity between professing brothers and sisters. It would certainly include Dissension, division, it would include malicious kinds of speech, slander and gossip and harshness and a lack of grace, a lack of love, a lack of compassion in how we interact with each other. It's this idea of bludgeoning one another to death. And if these kinds of things, malice and dissension and division and poisonous speech and this kind of abusing of each other 
If these things pop up in the church and they remain unchecked, the church will be undone and destroyed. That's Paul's warning. That's his admonition. Friends, for the rest of our time together, this is still underneath the major heading of point three. But I want us to consider for just a moment this. I want us to think about how freedom in Christ, and by freedom in Christ, I mean the gospel. How the gospel makes genuine love possible. We're going to think about that together. How is it that the gospel makes genuine love possible in a community of people like this? So again, when you hear me say freedom in Christ or gospel, I'm talking about the same thing. All right, the first thing is this. Call this subpoint A. I'm just going to restate and reiterate what I've already said. The gospel changes us. It changes us. I mean, this, you have to start here. Because apart from the new birth, genuine love is impossible. But because we have been born again and really changed by the Spirit of God as we have beheld Christ... We are now capable of genuine love. We're not the same as we were, and that's crucial. It's elementary and fundamental. But the next piece, we'll go on to letter B, subheading B. How is it the gospel makes genuine love possible? This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but here we go. The gospel kills self-righteousness. It kills pride, and it promotes humility. The gospel kills self-righteousness, it kills pride, and it promotes humility. So if we understand that we're always looking outside of us to save what's wrong in us, if we are understanding rightly that we are always, all of us, no matter how mature we may become in the faith, Jesus is always the ground of our standing before God, and we're always pointing one another to Him, then nobody is worried about parading his or her own righteousness around. It doesn't, does not really, on, on the one hand, matter. You're certainly not going to parade it around for other people to notice you and sort of pat you on the back to kind of feed your spiritual ego. You're not going to do that. You're not going to be offended at every turn because people are not taking notice of how righteous you are because you understand that your righteousness comes from Jesus and that, yes, you are being changed and grown by the Spirit of God, but that's His work in you, not your own. How then, if we're looking to Jesus for everything, how could we ever have any confidence in ourselves? We don't. As we've thought about today, Jesus has done everything. He has accomplished salvation. And there's nothing left for me to do that I could boast about. What could I then walk around puffed up thinking I have done this to contribute to my standing before God? Nothing. We're not wearing these little like spiritual merit badges all over the place. And we're, you know, like wanting everybody to look at how many we have versus how many they have. We're not doing that nonsense. And we realize, as I've already alluded to, that any growth in holiness, any growth in understanding of Scripture or theology or anything is not our own doing. Ultimately, it's not that we haven't worked. It's not that we haven't applied ourselves. Of course, we have. But it is God who has done that. In and through us. We have been working out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work and you will because God works in you. He gets the credit, not you. 
So if I can't take credit for anything, that humbles me. And then how, if all of these things that we're saying are true, how then could I stand up on high, as it were, and wag my finger at everybody else beneath me who is not where I perceive myself to be? The gospel destroys that kind of posture. Letter C. Thirdly, the gospel creates compassion and charity. The gospel creates compassion and charity. As we've considered a number of times here and we considered briefly today, the beginning of the real gospel message, it starts obviously with God making everything. But then very quickly, we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the fallenness of the world and the fallenness of us. And so because of the fall, there is this thing called sin as a condition. Sin, before it is ever an action, is a condition. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Our nature has been tragically corrupted by the fall of man, by original sin. And while that exonerates nobody, we understand biblically that there are struggles that people have that they did not sign up for. There are wars and battles that people fight every day with themselves that they did not sign up for. There are bins in our frames that we did not choose for ourselves. This is all part of gospel truth. So, as we are thinking about these things and what we are in Adam, we can then, as we have been rescued by Jesus, counted righteous by His working, not my working, we then can correct one another. We need to do that. But we can correct one another with compassion. Because we understand that that struggle that that brother or sister is fighting against or fighting in, he or she does not want for herself, himself. We can say true things to one another, which we must do. And we can say them with compassion, with charity. We don't feel the need to bludgeon one another and beat one another up. As we see people struggling hard with sin, our posture as we live in the gospel is one where we're moved to help them rather than condemn them. We are moved to come alongside them as a fellow struggler. And on another level, friends, just kind of thinking about sin and the realities of the fallen world that we live in, we're aware of how hard life is because of that. That's on our radar screens all the time. And so we understand that there are ways in which our brothers and sisters are suffering as a result of the brokenness of the world. And we have our eyes open to that and we have our antennas up for that and we seek to be of help as we can be. This could, be, this could take any number of forms. I mean, it could take like high-level forms of just systemic oppression and discrimination and racism and things like that in our culture. It could be as high-level as that, where we have our eyes open to that and our antennas up for that. And we want to come alongside and we want to do what we can to love people who are not like us, 
It could be as maybe practical on the ground. Not that that first is not practical on the ground. It affects everything underneath it. But just people have busy weeks, insane stretches of time where there's just more to do than time to do it. The demands of life are overwhelming. And it's like, hey, I'm drowning over here. I, I don't know. We're trying to keep our heads above water at our house like somebody help. And we see that. We're aware of that because of the fallenness of the world. That's real. And we're ready to jump in and help each other. We're not just sort of locked into our own little personal bubble. We're aware of how people suffer physically. Even in a small congregation like ours, there are a lot of real physical trials going on right now. And we're aware of that. People are sick. They're ill. They're struggling with chronic pain. And we see it and we want to help. When there is financial need, we realize that everything we've been given wasn't ours to begin with. God gave it by definition. It's a gift. And therefore, we want to use our resources well to help our brothers and sisters. Sometimes people, because of the fallenness of the world, frankly, they just feel alone. Or maybe they really are alone. And we see that and we know that that happens to people. And we are ready to jump in and help and come alongside. All of those things and more that I'm describing. Everything from systemic societal problems to how your home life went this week. They are related to and affected by sin. And because of the gospel creating compassion and charity and empathy, we are ready to come alongside people who suffer and love them. Next, letter D, number four. The gospel frees us to live authentically. How, how does the gospel promote right, genuine love? The gospel frees us to live authentically. This matters a lot. If we're going to have a community of people who are going to genuinely love one another, we need to live genuinely in front of each other. And the gospel, because again, my righteousness isn't in me. I'm not standing on that. My righteousness is found in Christ and I'm standing on Him, the solid rock. Because that's true. I don't feel the need to hide behind some spiritually beautiful facade that I've constructed. We realize that we're all strugglers against sin and the desires of our flesh. And in every good way I could mean this, we understand that it is okay to not be okay. Because none of us are okay. None. And now that is not, I just want to be very clear, I don't want to be misunderstood. That is not to condone sin. That is not certainly to celebrate sin. Oh, well, we're all messed up. Not what I mean. But it is, however, to encourage the discouraged and to strengthen the weary. Because there are plenty of those kinds. I speak to you, I preach to you, as I've said lately, as a struggling sinner. I'm a struggling sinner preaching to struggling sinners. We need strength. We need encouragement. And so it's good that we would own the fact, joyfully even, own the fact, that everyone in this church is a sinner. If you're not, we've got nothing for you, right? Everyone in this church, I want to, I want to just say some of these things to the tender consciences in the room. To people who are just convinced that like, I am the worst of this bunch of people. Like there is nobody in this church struggling like me. Because I know there are a number in the room who think that. 
Everyone in this church is messed up, and no one in this church is uniquely messed up. So if you understand yourself to be a great sinner, that's good. You're aware of how wicked your heart can be, that's also quite good. And now, lovingly, in every good way, take a number and get in line with the rest of us. And lock arms with us and turn your eyes upon Jesus because that's what we're all doing. Lastly, it's number five against letter E. Testing my alphabetical skills here. The gospel creates room to walk with a limp. The gospel creates room to walk with a limp. And so again, I'm speaking to people right now, speaking to all of us, but I'm speaking especially to those right now who understand themselves to be limping horribly as they struggle with sin. It matters not how bad the limp is. Two things are true. It matters not how bad a brother or sister in this church is limping along. A repenting sinner, a repenting sinner, ought never to be marginalized, ever. And a struggling sinner ought never to be shamed. So his words, repenting, means I want to follow God and I'm fighting against sin and I am aiming to turn from sin in my own goodness and I want to trust Christ completely and I want to live a life that honors God. I'm repenting and I keep failing. For that person to be marginalized is abominable in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For a struggling sinner, by definition, a struggler is someone who is fighting with sin. Striving to live for God. Not okay with it. Not apathetic, but fighting. Like for real. Not fighting perfectly, because none of us do, but fighting for real. For that person to have shame heaped upon them is horrifying in the church. And it, it should be said that heaping shame upon the, the sinner, the struggling sinner, the saint who is really limping and struggling hard under the weight of his or her sin to heap shame upon those kinds of saints is terrible, especially because they typically carry far more than enough shame around with them anyway. And so all we're really doing is coming off the top turnbuckle and piling it on. I heard it said this week on a podcast that I like um, in talking about dealing with struggling saints, right? There are warnings that exist in Scripture for sure, and we've talked a lot about that even through this series and this letter and what they are used for, right? But there need to be more tools in the toolbox than a hammer, right? If every you know, problem or every, the only tool you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail or however that phrase goes. But I heard this brother say, and I think it's right, when dealing with people who are struggling with sin and really striving to follow Jesus, nothing is helped by me hitting harder, right? By me punching harder. Nothing is helped in that situation. I think that's true. What changes that brother or sister often in that moment is the love and the compassion and the truth of the gospel as they're encouraged and exhorted in the faith. So the posture with struggling saints, I pray at CBC, would be one to encourage and exhort, certainly. A posture where we're ready to bend down and pick people up, lift them up, help them along. 
where there is sympathy and compassion for the struggle because it's real. And so I, I pray that dismissiveness would never be a part of what we are as a body. It should not be a part of what we are as a, brother, a body of brothers and sisters or just Christians in general. We ought never to dismiss the struggle and the suffering of others if we're going to love them genuinely. Our correction would be seasoned with charity and kindness and humility and grace. And above all things, what we all need in, in the times of discouragement and despair and struggle and hardship, what we all need is to be pointed to Christ and what He has done for us. Because as we often sing here in rejoicing, He has paid for every failing. And we are His forevermore. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for, for ourselves. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and our confidence and our hope in him. We pray, Lord, that as we look to Christ and as we trust your Holy Spirit to work in us, that you would continue to do the good work of changing us. We pray that you would create in our local church a genuine love for one another as brothers and sisters. We pray that you would create in us as we live in this community, in this city, that you would create in us a genuine love for our neighbor, compassion, charity and grace and humility and kindness, gentleness and all these things we pray would increasingly characterize us. God, you have promised that you will work these things in us. And so we pray in confidence that you will. We pray that you would make us diligent to apply the means that you have given us. We pray that we would regularly and faithfully gather together for word and sacrament and church realities. We pray that we would be people who love your word and people who pray about everything. Lord, we pray that you would use these means to keep us in the faith and make us more like your son. And we pray that you would do it in his name. Amen.